Welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. Happy Friday, everyone. We're so glad you're here with us. And please do, as Melissa said, if you've been with us before, you know we really love the chat functionality of Zoom. So um, let us know where you're from. It's great to see some folks joining us from um, really all over. We've got folks from Puerto Rico and Canada and Arizona and um, Michigan. So just let us know where you're from. Um, if you have questions as we go through, I've, of course, prepared some questions for Brian, but uh, we love to hear from you. Or if you have resources, best practices you want to share, we're always welcome to that. So um, please do put those in the chat and we'll make sure we weave all of that um, into our conversation. Um, so Melissa will make sure that everybody has access to um, our short slide deck. If you would like to share Friday Five Live, it is um, a podcast and that's available on all podcasting platforms. Um, so you can share it with a friend. We like to say that it pairs nicely with a cup of tea or a good walk. Um, and we are just absolutely delighted to have Brian Van Brunt with us today. He's the Director of Behavior and Threat Management for D-Prep Safety and um, has spent time as a child and family therapist, as a university professor, um, and the president of the National Association for Behavioral Intervention Threat Assessment. Um, so I've had the opportunity to learn from Brian and some webinars he's done and through um, some two-minute takeaways for us. So I'm excited that Brian's here today to really share with us some strategies and thoughts as we return to campus um, from, unfortunately, from traumatic events. Um, I think this is all too much um, just the reality of, of our lives, um, whether we're in K-12 schools or, or higher education places um, these days. So, uh, Brian, I appreciate you joining us today for what I think is a really important conversation. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So as always, um, I prepare some questions for um, our presenter. And then if you all have questions, um, don't hesitate to put those in uh, to our chat. Melissa's dropped our PowerPoint um, in there with us, uh, for us. So, you know, Brian, I'm thinking about um, in my own work, you know, I teach at Piedmont Virginia Community College. And unfortunately, um, there was shooting deaths at the University of Virginia, just, you know, miles from campus in the fall semester. That's also my alma mater. So I feel like this is a conversation that is is very much, you know, um, been been an issue that's weighed on uh, my heart um, this academic year. So could you share with us, because I loved your examples of some traumatic events that students in particular uh, might encounter um, that become obstacles really to their academic progress, because I think you do a beautiful job of really painting this in a very um, kind of broad um, brushstroke, which I think is important. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I And I think that's exactly how I would describe it, that in one of my books I wrote uh, related to crisis, that crisis mm -hmm. is contextual. And I, I give this fun example of uh, it's a Disney World example when uh, the lights camera action show was on, on board. And I, I said with crises, it was interesting to think about this. You know, someone being lit on fire. Most of us would say that that is a crisis that no question, hands down, that's a crisis. Now, if you're someone in that show, three times a day, you were lit on fire in, a, in your <laughs> flame suit, you know, albeit. So it's a kind of a neat example to think about. And I think this applies as much to a crisis event as it does to a traumatic event, that it really is individualized, that any type of trauma, 
or traumatic reaction that we have is really tied to a couple different factors. The individual's contextual resilience, their mm -hmm. experience and their background, as well as um, the cumulative effect of, of trauma. You know, for me as a counseling center director when I was there, someone coming in and saying, I'm suicidal, will you help me, was not traumatic or a crisis. It was Tuesday at, at three o'clock. So you know, understanding, I think, that it, it's dependent on our environment as well. But let me be practical, because I think that's probably more what you're looking for. That when I think about trauma that most commonly impacts you know, students that might impact learning, I think certainly uh, individual trauma that might occur in the family, a divorce, a uh, financial crisis, a, a death of a close friend, those are the, you know, the big ones that we might see, mm -hmm. even a relationship ending that you know, for that student was a major you know, sense of support. And again, with relationships, that could be a short-term relationship that just meant a lot to them or something that was very long-term. So I don't think you can define the impact of the trauma, particularly by the length of the relationship or um, it really is individualized. The big ones that come to mind, obviously, are a school shooting, um, mm -hmm. a traumatic event on campus, a suicide on campus. You know, these kind of things I describe become escalated or increase in impact almost like a uh, stone hitting a, a calm pond, those ripple effects, you know, move out from that as well. So things that increase the impact of the trauma can be the um, closeness or proximity to the event. If it's a student in your class who passed away or it's something that you've experienced personally, typically that experience is a little more intense. Mm -hmm. But it also can be related to things that you're going through yourself. So I, I describe this as a bit of a resonance um, if you think about like a tuning fork, if you will, kind of smacking into another tuning fork and they you bring them close and the, the, the sound amplifies. So that's about the length of my uh, music knowledge besides, you know, our Blondie conversation before the program right. started that, you know, this is the, the issue that I think if there's something that you've had traumatic happen in your life, um, an easy example would be a bad relationship breakup. And you're seeing that in someone that you care for that's happening close to you, it might recall you know, for you, that experience. Um, so just a couple examples there, you know, obviously uh, environmental disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, uh, hazmat spills, these kind of things also, you know, fall into those traumatic circumstances. Um, and then, you know, students losing something that's important to them. Um, the inability to continue in a program if they've always wanted to be a teacher. And then oh. suddenly they've failed a key exam in that space or wanted to pledge a Greek class. So I think, you know, the point, which I think you said very succinctly in the beginning was trauma is defined broadly. And I think oh. that's an important way to understand it, that there's not, I don't think we should pour all of our resources into a response, say, for like a mass shooting. Obviously, that's a huge traumatic event. And then neglect, you know, some of these smaller ones that might not be as uh, visible, if you will. Right. Um, one of the other things that you had mentioned that I think, I, I think is really important, too, in our context of higher education it's Title IX, you know, incidents Absolutely. and responses. I mean, that, and that's always in the news, right? And um, something universities, I think, are, and colleges are constantly challenged with addressing. Yeah, it's, it, there's a case now I'm working where it, it's not even, you know, I hesitate to say the, the worst, you know, it's not a sexual, full on sexual assault, but it's one where there was some um, miscommunication, if you will, mm -hmm. between two parties. And, you know, it's been months where they're both, wrestling really reasonably with the implications of this, how it plays out in their friend groups and how these things work. Mm. So, 
you know, in our in our discussion before the call, we were talking a little bit about childhood and you know, kind of remembering some of those relationship challenges and some of the uh, the places that we get stuck. So certainly, Title IX issues, um, both in the sexual arena, but also in those um, equity spaces of mm-hmm. marginalized populations. And I had a close friend of mine, uh, Dr. Hodo, who, who teaches in this space as well, say. And we were doing a program and just the recent news of the shooting that occurred, like just shut her down as a person of color. Yeah. Like she, she described it as a just this intense racial trauma. So even just watching the news and watching issues that are very much related to to your status or the group that you belong, um, certainly the LGBTQ population now watching some of the laws passed in Florida um, are yeah, it's overwhelming. So, I mean, that's another example of, you know, something that's not happening per se at your location, but for a student um, who's an ally or in the that alphabet group, you know, feeling like their rights are taken away and that they're being targeted and that they're unsafe. Like we have friends that are considering moving out of the state because of some of the laws. So it's it's both on that national level, but also the, um, you know, the content or thematic things that we see happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that, lends itself so nicely to this next question. And and I'm also, you know, thinking about, so this next question is, you know, we, we all understand, we all react to traumatic events differently, but maybe shedding some light on how these differences might kind of commonly manifest. I'm also going to add on to that. You had, you had mentioned this Title IX work that you're doing and and these, you know, students who it's impacting this friend group. And I'm thinking too about the impacts of COVID. I mean, not the entire experience, right, of having lived through this pandemic and we have these students showing up to campus. I mean, who, you know, people are still talking about um, some of my college students as, oh, they're really high school plus, right? That we've, we've sort of missed some of these kind of normal steps in our growth and development. Um, because of that experience interrupting them. Um, so, so sorry to add one on. No, um, it's fine. fine. But somehow that all kind of connects in my mind. Yeah, I mean, let me start with COVID. I mean, the, the missing of those developmental mile, milestones from the prom to graduation, both from high school to um, college, I, I missed my, you know, I, be, because I am who I am, I didn't quite miss it. But, you know, my 50th birthday fell in the middle of it. And for mm. me, you know, that was a sense of loss. Certainly, we would hope that someone <laughs> like at, at their 50s would have some different resiliency than a, than a kid missing a prom or, um, right. you know, someone in college. But the, the pain, again, is there. Um, and there's these life events that can't really be repeated. You can hold another prom or another graduation or a secondary party. But in the end, the, the date means something mm-hmm. different to different folks. Um, and how COVID itself, you know, manifests. I think one of the things we saw was the the divergent impact for everyone. And when we talk about stress tolerance and cumulative stress and how things add up for us, I think that's important as well that, you know, I think for many people, COVID, for all of us, it was disruptive. For some, it was a life threat. For others, it was frustrating and annoying. And I think there was that disparity with celebrities, you know, being locked in their mansions and their pools and not being able to go out felt very different to people who uh, were first first line nurses and doctors or people who had to work food service and and the like so i think there's this comparative hierarchy in terms of you know how we okay. approach that but yeah covid certainly was a big one you know for many of us the 
reaction differently to traumatic events is, and I don't necessarily have an equation for this, but certainly one could be developed or is out there somewhere. I think it's related to the amount that you've experienced before. So the cumulative nature of stress. Um, Hans Seal talks about this in some important experiments that are a little dark. I won't go into all the details, but they involve rats and uh, stress reactions. But uh, essentially that, you know, if there's an end in sight that we tend to do better with stress and overcoming okay. trauma and a lot of the work we do in the aftermath of a, an acute trauma event for someone in a clinical space in terms of treatment is very much responding to what we might call an adjustment disorder to right. prevent it from becoming PTSD. So the idea that if we can apply the right treatment early after someone's experienced a traumatic event, we can help them not have that get worse, help that from worsening. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the differences in, in reactions, I think one of the things to keep in mind is as each person reacts differently to these, I think our stance as a helper, you know, someone from the outside mm -hmm. as a professor or as another student or a friend or a parent or, you know, any of the roles that we find ourselves realizing that this is, um, and this is going to be funny, I think, to Melissa that she knows I'm not a sports ball fan. So my sport knowledge is almost zero, but I'm going to use a sports ball reference. And I think it's playing a zone defense. Like, I think mm -hmm. it is hanging back a bit and trying to um, kind of see what works as you move forward. Perhaps like a, a childhood game example might be like Minesweeper, where we just don't have all the data in front of us. So we're taking some guesses at first. So one of the missteps, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but if we are going to acknowledge that everyone has different um, experiences with trauma, that the way we help them has to also be different for each person. So there has to be an attempt on reading that person's uh, let me say it plainly, like what's going to help? So for some of us, if I had a loss, for example, in my life, a death um, that was powerful for me, I, despite being very extroverted and having lots of friends and being very social, I would want to reflect alone for a while. That would be what I would need the most. Um, and I think being checked on and you know, knowing people were caring about me would be good. I don't know that I'd be ready to engage in a conversation right away. And for other people, you know, having that same kind of loss, that's the thing they would crave immediately. Okay. So I think, you know, some of the challenges is we make assumptions about what that person might need. Wow. Um, and, and certainly there's some regular assumptions that are helpful, like things like, you know, food or, you know, caring or support or a, a caring message, you know, I think are, are fairly universal. But I had a recent a colleague who had lost someone close to them and we were talking about a work issue and I stopped myself. I'm like, oh, you probably don't need to think about this right now. And she said, no, Brian, this is exactly what I need to distract myself. So I think appreciating when people are reacting differently to trauma, uh, part of this, or even grief to some extent, part of it's being aware of, you know, listening to the other person about what they need. And if they can't express that, you know, understanding that's very reasonable, that they might not be able to express exactly what they need, that we default to some of the safe areas that we say, I'm going to bring you a meal and leave it, you know, for you, or I'm going to, you know, call and check on you a little later today. You don't have to really say a whole lot. I just want to make sure you're okay, or I'll text message you. Just give me a thumbs up if you're hanging in. So okay. I think it's those kind of things that, um, might be my kind of safe zone interventions as we move forward. But I think I jumped ahead a little bit onto what to do. But the, the main point here is that we're all going to experience these things differently. Um, I, can I share a quick story? I have a friend who That's works. So um, yeah, I don't even wait. I'm just I'm sharing a quick story. I should say <laughs> I have a friend who 
works emergency services, and he is a brilliant person, works for the Red Cross. He's been a counseling center director for 30 years. Brilliant guy. And has a, a level of like layered armor that is impressive. Like he has done this work. He has seen, he has responded to every major disaster in the US from Katrina to the Las Vegas shooting to Sandy Hook, to all of it. And the thing that got him was a girl had, um, part of the, the deal is they hand out a um, stuffed animal sometimes with the Red Cross and disaster zones. And he handed out one to this little girl. And she handed it back to him and said, and my apologies, because this is going to get everyone, I think. She hands it back to them and says, I want you to save this for someone else who might need it more than I do. And this girl had just lost her entire home. And it's those, and that got past his armor. <laughs> it took him yeah. down for two days. So it's, I think, an important story to realize that even when we have good defense mechanisms, coping strategies, and resiliency, there are times uh, that something sneaks past in the most innocuous way. Um, even the the watching of, uh, we were talking about Hamilton before, and e even the watching of Hamilton, I lose it for some very personal reasons at the, the walking scene at the end where he's you know walking on the streets and they're trying to rekindle the relationship and it just every time bawling like an idiot in the theater. So um, we can try to defend, I think, against these things, but our emotions have this uh, un uncanny knack for sneaking up on us. And I think being okay with that on some level is useful. These complex trauma reactions are times where people are unable to take care of themselves, attend work, attend um, you know, to their friendships, to the basic daily needs. That's where we really might need to step in more firmly and offer help. So I, that's my long uh, soliloquy on this topic. I, I think it was, I know, and I, I appreciate you tying in Hamilton, but what a powerful story about, sure. you know, when we, when we do have some training in these areas and we still, I mean, I mean, this just being human, right? And this acknowledging our human, our human nest. You know, I'm thinking about um, our listening audience and, and do please put your questions in for Brian. You know, I, I think one of the things that I've heard repeatedly in my work in the community college is that um, we're calling more and more on our faculty members and our staff to be able to recognize, you know, that that kind of oh this this person this student or or this you know teammate um, needs some resources additional resources that um, kind of go beyond what I'm able to to give and I know that that has been um, sometimes felt um, overwhelming I think to some of you know my colleagues who are like whoa you know my expertise is geology it is not right um, how to be you know how to identify um, and, and Angelica just put in mental health first aid is becoming more and more popular for frontline workers. Um, just curious in your work, how do we kind of help folks? I feel like we all sort of need this kind of mental health first aid. Um, you know, our, our community college system has committed to trauma-informed care for all of the all staff across 23 community colleges. Um, but, but what are some, this is off script, but entirely, sorry, Brian, we've abandoned the questions. No, you're good. What, what are, are you some, in California? Are those schools in California or is that? No, I'm in Virginia. So the oh, Virginia okay. Community College System. And um, and I really admire that that commitment um, that, that we all need to kind of have that sort of 
um, and, and the potential very good ripples that can happen in our community when we all sort of approach one another with this sort of understanding. Um, so, but, but to, to say, are there strategies or a particular institution that you're like, this school is really, you know, a great example of how to do this kind of work so that we can all kind of have this toolkit for lack of a better term that we bring to our conversations and our work. Yeah. Gosh, I have so many thoughts. So first off, I, I asked the question about California because I just picked up a contract with our other company to do this for the state of California. And it's on building a trauma-informed care approach to um, CalWORKs. And it, it, it's wonderful when Virginia and California are, are aligned on some of these issues, which doesn't happen frequently. So it's kind no. of neat to see similar uh, efforts in both the community college system and the state system you know, dedicated to it. For for a definition purpose, I'll say, you know, trauma-informed care is is a big buzzword right now, and it, it's always worth clarifying a bit that I've seen it used two primary ways, and then I'll kind of jump back into your question. When we think about trauma-informed care, the clinical staff, mental health professionals, and Title IX professionals typically see this as an awareness that when someone's experienced a trauma experience in their life, that we should be aware of very intense reactions in certain places, maybe out of character reactions. Uh, the, the big example in trauma-formed care occurs a lot in interviewing a, a sexual assault, a uh, person who's gone through a sexual assault, to understand that their memory might be a bit fragmented, uh, the way they might answer questions might not always line up. And I think more recently, trauma-informed care, and this is probably where Virginia is, is borrowing this into a more broad definition of when we are programming, when we are educating, when we are having conversations with people, being aware of uh, potential trigger impacts, uh, how mm -hmm. our messaging might hit different populations, and how do we tune our messaging on educational matters to a particular population. So I, I love that because to me that's talking about what uh, I think a general practitioner might do in this space, mm -hmm. understanding that depending on who we're talking to and teaching to, we might want to tune up our examples, be aware of reactions and the like. So just a little uh, definition piece there from me. Um, in terms of, the, and I love how you ask the questions, Meg, I, I feel like it's it's very simpatico to how I ask questions, which can be a little annoying because oh. it's like a therapist asking questions. You gave, you gave me so many attachment points to kind of connect to, and I really appreciated that. And I wanna, I'll, I'll only say meta once in a program. I had a friend commit me to that, so this is the only time I'm gonna say it. But I do find that, that it, there's, a, there's a teaching moment in the way that you just asked me that question in so much as these are the kind of ways when I talk about being a bit more cautious in your response, a bit more artful, kind of seeing what things are going on. If you're not 100% sure and you wanna give the other person a couple different ways to respond and you don't wanna make assumptions, just the way you ask that question is exactly what we talk about when we talk about trauma-informed, at least on the educational side of things, that we are uh, slower to make assumptions about issues and that we ask questions that give people many opportunities to engage and there's no one singular path. It's a bit of a naturalistic inquiry, if you will. Um, so, you know, to answer the question, <laughs> my roundabout way yeah. is to say that, you know, for each of us, we're going to have, again, this different reaction to trauma. And um, when I think about the trauma-informed care perspective, it's really trying to take into account our best guess in terms of 
you know, what's going to be helpful for them. So when you're looking as a professor out across the sea or a teacher or instructor uh, across the sea of your students, you know, first off, I think it's the identification piece that's important. So the, there's lists from here to alternity. And I can summarize maybe like a good three or four of them. We're looking for, you know, really a change in behavior is mm -hmm. a big one where someone who used to be uh, bright eyed and bushy tailed and ready to take on the world is now withdrawn and, and a little less chatty. Uh, someone who used to be very uh, calm and even keeled. This is one for me. I'm, I'm usually pretty calm and even keeled when I get uh, irritable and snippy and maybe a little uh, frustrated it comes across more loudly because I'm usually pretty even keeled. So I think it's those things that we'd want uh, instructors to pay attention to, mm -hmm. uh, as well as um, I think there's sometimes physical manifestations of these signs, people uh, to the point of, you know, having, you know, a, a shaky kind of demeanor. Um, I've, I've had this myself during high periods of stress where I'll notice my hand might start to twitch a bit. We might see a manifestation of like stomach problems, aches. Mm -hmm. uh, we all kind of know when we're in a high stress. I mean, it's almost an activity I'd ask for the audience to consider. You know, the last time you were stressed in the most intense way, what were some of the ways that you knew you were stressed? And these might be some of the things you'd want to look for related to trauma reactions. So, you know, an upset stomach, a, a certain pain, irritability, a lack of, you know, bring your A game to things. So, you know, for the professors, the instructors, the folks who are doing this frontline work, you know, one of the things we worry about as well is this idea of um, compassion fatigue. We worry about this with uh, counselors as well, that they are being asked to do a lot of different things. And this is where psychology professors and sociology professors, we get we get a leg up. Right. So we we you're so good at like working with the students in these ways. Like, that's amazing. Right. It's like, well, that's what we're teaching, too. Right. So I, I have a, a certainly I have a heart for the, the STEM professors and math and such that, you know, they are teaching a very specific subject matter and i often tell administrators you know go easy on these folks like because you want to see me try to teach linear algebra you don't it would not be very pretty so you know don't expect your linear algebra professor or instructor to have that same range of ability to talk to a student who's suicidal or having a traumatic reaction mm -hmm. in class we have to give them the training and the support to do that and that's one of the things i've been working with innovative educators for at least 10 years, if not 15. Mm -hmm. And part of why I've stayed connected to this company for so long um, has been their dedication to providing this information and this support to the people that they train on, that it's not just about a one and done. The whole go, I've watched the go-to knowledge uh, product you know, line develop. This is a new thing that I've seen with the Friday Five um, live thing but what a cool idea to offer this to people and i think this is exactly what we're talking about helping those instructors and teachers and professors and administrators and your teaching assistants all the people who are expected to try to help making sure they have some of the support like this so they know what to look for mm -hmm. and know that the, there's resources that they need to move that student to um so mm -hmm. yeah. and i think just that comfort and knowledge that nobody expects them to be an expert on yeah Right. You're a subject matter expert on, on your subject. Right. And this, you just need to kind of take a human approach um, and have There's care. A, yeah. What a, another great Red Cross story. Like if people haven't heard this one before, anytime you're in a Red Cross deployment, this one like just resonated with me and made me smile. My friend was telling me this, that they have a rule that you always can see another Red Cross vest. 
And I was like, well, like that is intense. Like if you let that sink in a minute, so like on a, a hurricane scene or a disaster scene, you can always look around and see another vest. And I was like, wow, like that, talk about a cool metaphor for the community college professor, right? He's working with students. You, if your college, and maybe it's a call to action, your college should be providing a program like that where you always can have another vest in sight that, you know, I worked at Western Kentucky um, and even here, you know, if you're a community college professor on the call, like I'll put my email in the line, um, on the chat, happy to chat with you. You know, if you have a traumatic event or you're not sure how to respond to a student, there's resources out there. We can connect you to some people, but you always should have a call a friend in these situations. So the one thing I think that's, um, un we shouldn't do one thing that we really shouldn't do is put people out there alone. So no one should feel alone in this work trying to help these students. So, you know, between innovative educators and, you know, their partners and their content people, like I think all of us would enjoy a conversation where someone said, I'm not sure what to do. This student seems really off lately and I want to help them, but I'm just not sure how um, that that's an important conversation to have. So if there's resources on your campus, how do you connect to them? And if not, you know, talk to one of us and we'll see how we can help. That's a really great, great point. Last month we talked, um, Jessica Gifford came on, who's doing a lot of work around belonging and the importance of belonging in, um, and thank you, Brian, for putting your, your email there. And, um, and, and the importance of belonging for students, but also the importance of belonging for faculty and staff, right? And so when I think about, if I look up and I can see another, I need to be able to see another uh, Red Cross vest, I need to look up and be able to to know that I have somebody. I mean, I tell my students this all the time. You have to identify who your person is on campus, uh-huh. right? Like, who's your person? Um, I will be your person. Find somebody to be your person. But we also need to make sure we do that as faculty and staff as well. I think sometimes we're so caught up in doing the work that, that we forget we owe ourselves that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not doing this. Put on your mask first, right? And then help help others. Like, and I love your phraseology there. Like that is, you you can tell your, uh, I don't know if you, I should know this before this in the middle of the live program, Meg, but I saw a first year experience professor. Is that your major area of teaching? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it it comes through because like you, you, you talk in a way that I think students would appreciate. And then knowing your person is such a, um, I feel like it even has like a social, media or movie kind of contact about who your person is like it's just such a cool phrase that students relate to and i think again that genuineness and authenticity is another way so even if you're at a spot where you don't know exactly the sme like the subject matter expert you know response for something to say i'm just worried about you and i might not be saying the right thing right now but I want to make sure that you have a person to talk to. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really the only script you need. And then you mm-hmm. just attach yourself to them. We used to joke, you like, put them in a headlock and walk them over to counseling right. in a loving way, a, lo- a headlock of love. And um, <laughs> yeah, you said the headlock of love. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that'll translate well, but um, the other thing, just real quick, the, um, we did a survey not too long ago that talked about Title IX reports, kind of the tying mm-hmm. it back to this. And what we found was at this one school, 80% of students felt comfortable reporting a first Title IX offense or problem or a gatekeeping issue to their professor. And like 20% felt comfortable reporting it to the Title IX coordinator. And that that was not a, a, any type of negative, you know, 
shade no. thrown at the Title IX coordinator, but it speaks to who students spend time with and who look right. up to and why we need to make sure that they have access to these resources and they know what to do. I think the skill set is there for almost every instructor, no matter the subject area. I think it's just making sure that they um, have a plan and know that there's people there to help and know what script they should be using in a certain scenario. I think most most professors and instructors and teachers are capable to offer that first line support. Mm -hmm. It's just helping them feel supported to doing that. It's important. Right, right. And that is a really beautiful segue to this question about, you know, we we have this traumatic event. It's how like how do you know when it's time to get back to work, get back to class? And I want to put the caveat in there that sometimes there isn't a lot of flexibility around that, right? Um, you know, my own family, we had um, a traumatic event um, and when my sister was in college. And I remember saying to her, like, you're going to, if you're going back, what's the support? And you got to be committed or we need to do the medical withdrawal for the semester. Like, you, you can't go back and just fail the classes. That's like, we know enough not to do that. Um, right, so, right. right, here are your couple of options. And then that leads to also what, as we think about, you know, having that sort of first line of response, and we're going to then refer people outside of a counseling center, are there other things we should be aware of that exist? And knowing that not all of us get to have counseling centers, none of the community colleges in Virginia have a counseling center on campus. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I mean, great, great questions. And, and again, layered with lots of opportunities to jump in. Like, I think I, th I think for someone who's gone through a traumatic event, giving them, again, those choices in terms of what they'd like to do. And then if they're unable to handle, um, for those who like video games, like an open sandbox <laughs> kind of game where you have all the choices, you can do whatever you want, follow a quest, don't follow a quest. Like realizing that for some, even the option of making a choice is overwhelming. So I, I have this great little exercise about, you know, for my, my younger kids where, you know, it was time for Katarina to pick out an outfit for school. And, you know, isn't this great? You get to choose. You can wear the blue outfit or the green outfit. You get to pick whichever one you want, you know. So I think having a good awareness of um, boxing choices is, is yeah. useful. So anyone who's been a parent can appreciate uh -huh. you know, the implication of freedom within the constructs of limits. And um, that's a great skill, I think, to have. Um, I think also having a plan B and C, realizing that while this would not be optimal to have you return to school and do a medical withdrawal and lose a lot of tuition money because you didn't think about that beforehand, that might happen still. Mm -hmm. And how do we, you know, plan to handle that. I also think, and this is a major divergence, I won't go too far down this rabbit hole, but the issue of privilege comes up. And I had a similar issue with my daughter who's at a community college. And by the way, I love community colleges. Both my son went through it and then went to a four year. My daughter's doing the same. I think community colleges are the best thing that ever was created. And it works really well for our family. But she went and she was having some questions, you know, some issues of, do I stay? What do I want to study? Do I go? Should I get a job? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, having done this before, and Meg, I'm, I'm feeling this parallel to you, like having walked this path before, I'm like, well, you can take a semester off or you can go back, but we'd really like you to choose. And you know, the financial right. implications weren't as huge. It was probably a $1,500 potential, you know, miss if she went back and, and had to withdraw without, um, not the proper way. And we lost the tuition. 
but you know, in the end, that's, I had all this wisdom and really, I knew looking at the situation, she should not go back. I told her she should not go back. I told her mother that she should not go back. And of course she went back and then did it for two weeks and then said, I'm not doing this well. I want to withdraw. And I'm like, well, of course, because I've done this for like 30 years and I can read when college students should go back or not. And I'm like, you're not ready. But you know, in the end it worked out. So the privilege point though, is like for us, that was something that was manageable for others in different financial situations this adds to the trauma and the stress that those kind of mistakes then for the rest of their life have ruled out college or ruled out this ability to attend so i think there has to be a culturally appropriate kind of look at this i'm reminded of tammy's comment about the recent shootings of people of color again and how that impacts people that this cumulative trauma like this didn't end in the protests in 2020 like this is still in existence and it's still coming back for a lot of folks so and it's a bit of a, a switch and a rabbit hole but the the challenge here oh, around so trauma funny. and being culturally informed is is really important here mm -hmm. um you know back to your question though i think you know when we're thinking about how to actually let me let me have you narrow me a little bit Megs. i know we're coming short on time let me yeah. can you narrow me a bit on the response so I guess the question is, what are some things that we should look for either in ourselves or in our students that say, okay, it's, I, I'm, I'm ready to move back into this community yeah. again, or, and maybe we'll just focus on that since we yeah, only have a Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's. If there's a way to do it in kind of a stepwise, like I like to have data informing our decisions. So I think it's partially listening to the student in question to say, are they feeling ready to come back? Um, understanding that there's never going to be a perfect time. So there's that old adage of don't let um, perfection be the enemy of the good. Yes. So it, it's never going to be perfect, but could it be tolerable? And maybe even offering a separate question of if you if you were to go back, what supports would be helpful to have in place to aid you in being more successful in that return. And I, I think, you know, when I go to my go-to theorists in this space, I go to Stephen mm -hmm. Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is a weird place to go, but I keep coming back to their stuff, his stuff, and I'm like, it's good, um, just in terms of how we look at things. And, and the other part, one of the books that I would recommend, that's really an odd book to recommend in this subject, but it's written by uh, Prochaska de Clemente and Norcross. It's around trans-theoretical change theory. And what a mouthful that is. Um, this book, uh, and I want to say it's a practical guide to change or something like that. We'll find it and put it in the uh, materials for you as a link. But the, the power of this book is it talks about how we move through change. And when I think about someone returning to school after a traumatic event, understanding how we approach it's, it's a change, right? And, and they're, they're moving from not being go in class or ready to go back to now being in class and going to back, ready to be back. So when I think about their staged model, I would say they're probably gonna be at pre-contemplative, like not even thinking about going back, working through the pain of what's going on. They'll begin to have a contemplation and say, you know what? I probably have to go back at some point. Me sitting at home is not very productive. It's been a while. I probably, maybe even friends and family are nudging them slightly. And then they get ready to the next stage, which is at, with preparation and then followed by action. And the preparation would be, okay, well, let me look and see what I need to do to return. What assignments do I catch up on? Let me make myself a to-do list. How do I get ready for this? 
the action is, all right, next Tuesday, I'm going back. That's I'm going to get my Dunkin' Donuts. I'm going to get my coffee. I'm going to, you know, plan to attend the first class. I'm going to make this happen. And then the the beauty of this model, they have two other steps, which is uh, maintenance. Like it all works out great. You keep going. And then it's relapse. And this is uh, the shoots and ladders, you know, all the way back down to the to the gumdrop forest. I think I'm going to mix up my video game, my uh, board games. You, you one's Candyland and one shoots and ladders. That's fine. So <laughs> you get the image, though. Like we have to understand that the, the change often happens and change being going back into a you know, state of normality that right. we have to allow for some resiliency. There's a, a great YouTube video as well on this called um, Oh, life equals risk. So if you type into YouTube, life equals risk, it's a video that talks about, it's one of my favorites to show at a community college setting. It's around people who have tried to change and do something good. So it's kind of an argument for resiliency, like Abraham Lincoln fighting his depression and suicidality. Um, and it goes through about like 10 different people who have had major burdens in their life and have been you know, attempting to be successful and change. So I think there's a lot of lessons in that in terms of, you know, how do we prepare? How do we move from thinking about it to taking preparation and action steps to do it? But it, it all is like underneath this umbrella of this could work and we have to maintain it. Or if it doesn't work, let's go back again and update our plan and try again in a different way. Um, those, those would be some answers I'd have for that. Really? And I think that's such a, a beautiful kind of as we think about wrapping up that you know, one of my questions was signs or signals, somebody's going to need additional support, right? They've come back. And and that change theory that, that you shared with us really speaks to that, that there may well be this kind of relapse event. And so we need to be aware of that. Um, I, I really appreciate you putting into context this idea of, of adapting or moving through these steps with regards to change. Because one of the things I heard a lot from students and we did a lot of work with really listening to students as uh, last fall a year ago, as we were returning to campus, right? And and many of the students we heard from were very distressed that their institutions were like, all right, we're back to normal. And, and they were like, but our lives aren't normal. Like, what? <laughs> this is not just a return to things as they were. Um, and, and so when we put that framework of change theory, I think that's such a, and thanks for putting that um, link there in the chat for us. I, I think that's such a, an important way to acknowledge what's happened. And I, and I think that's one of the messages I've sort of heard over the last two years is that whether it's response to COVID or a personal traumatic event or these camp community traumatic events, whether that's weather related or shooting or, or what have you, that that sensitivity to we have experienced some change, whether as an individual or a community, and we need to be aware of that and give that space to move through that those stages and process that is really important. And I think that as administrators, we need to be incredibly sensitive to that. And many of us are. And sometimes um, that's, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, um, 
or not. Um, Nadine has mentioned, and I'll make sure that um, Brian's email and link go out to um, everyone. Um, if you have a final question for Brian, we have just one more minute. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us, Brian, because I know that this is, um, uh, and you mentioned life risk, and that's our YouTube video link we yeah. should pull up. I'll put that awesome. book in there for the, everyone. I think I did the hosts and panelists, so my apologies for that. I'll that's, drop that into the full. But I just want to say thank you. This is such uh, just a, um, an incredibly important topic. Um, I think this is kind of life um, in our in our nation right now and, and something we need to be um, discussing, thinking about coming together as community. Um, and, and I, I really appreciate your insights into ways that, you know, as faculty and staff, um, we don't have to be subject matter experts, gives ourselves some grace, um, but there are things we can do to support one another and support our students uh, moving through um, traumatic events. You know, we're lucky next month, and, and Brian, I hope you can maybe listen in at least, um, David Danino, who you had um, suggested is gonna come May 12th is our next Friday Five Live. Um, 12 to 12.45 Eastern, and we'll be talking about mental health, suicide prevention, um, and, and David's work um, helped bring about the 988 response number um, that we now have uh, in the United States. So it'll be a really, I think, uh, a, a wonderful dovetailed conversation to the one that um, we've begun today, Brian, and kind of a natural sort of progression um, in our topic. Yeah, and if there's ever any you know needs that people have, again, I dropped my email, I think, and, and Meg might have reposted that for y'all since I put it in the wrong spot. Um, we're happy to, part of what we do at DPREP is, is direct programming on this too. So if having a workshop on building this kind of resiliency is useful for you, um, I believe we even have one scheduled with Innovative Educators. And yes. maybe we can you know send that out to you as well. That one's a little bit more, I think, focused on the, uh, the faculty piece of it, but you know, again, we teach in this area of resiliency, whether it's a day visit to campus or talking to faculty, um, in addition to the offerings that IE has you know, in this space. And Dave is a great speaker and I think really um, passionate about the work on suicide prevention. So I absolutely will be there to listen in on that one and uh, very much encourage you all to attend. Awesome. Well, happy Friday, everyone. Um, we always wanna send folks off with um, just a, a reminder that you are doing good, important work. I know we are at the end of the semester and it sometimes feels like that frantic um, sprint through peanut butter to get to um, graduation and, and on through final exams. So thank you all for your time. I hope that there's time for rest and renewal this weekend and Brian, safe travels um, to thank you. you. Thanks everybody. Have a great weekend and I look forward to seeing you all in May um, for our next Friday Five Live. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.